we'll be making our way to James chapter 5 as we continue our journey through the letter of James. And as you guys make your way to the fifth chapter of James, by now you know that the theme of the book of James is true faith works. We don't have a works-based faith, but we have a faith that works. And so James is communicating this theme of true faith. The faith of a true believer is one that will go out and actually uh, do things. But as James is writing this, what he's hoping to bring out from these people who've been scattered throughout the Roman Empire is this sense of Christian maturity, that it's time to actually grow up in our faith. It's time to advance to the next steps. And what he says in chapter 1, verse 22 is that we are not to be hearers only, but we're to be doers of the word, to get out there, get into action. Now, remember, as he's writing this letter, he's writing this to a group of people who have been kicked out of their home. They've been drove out of Jerusalem. They've been persecuted. Many of the people they know and love have lost their lives or for sure lost everything that they had. And so as he's sharing this with them, what he's saying is it's okay to get involved. It's okay to get involved with the people in the place that you've been sent to because as you've been driven from your home, which is for sure a trial, what has also happened is the word of God has gone forth. And you think about this persecution that happened to this early church. This was really the thing that drove the word of God to the far reaches of the world. And so as this happens, what he's trying to do is encourage them as they grow in maturity. And what he says in chapter 1, in summary, is that mature Christians are joyful even in trials. That what God is all about is getting the most good for the most people. Even in the midst of a trial and a tribulation, what he's doing is he is working in your life and he's working in the life of the people around you. Now chapter 2, what he shares is that mature Christians will grow in true relationships. The reason for Christ coming down from heaven, pouring himself into the person of a man, and then dying on our behalf was to actually reconnect, to relink. That's what this word religion actually means. It's to relink this broken relationship, this broken fellowship that we know that we have with the Father. We know that something is wrong. Even as small children, little kids know as we grow up from a child then into adolescence, we know something is missing. There's got to be something more than this. And so it's this broken relationship that Jesus came and did something on our behalf that we could not do for ourselves. The problem with religion is that it's man's attempt to relink to an infinite God. It's, it's impossible. It cannot happen. No matter how many rules and regulations we put in place, it's not possible. But what Jesus did is the infinite God has came down to connect us to uh, the infinite God as finite human beings. And so what I like to say is that the Son of God became the Son of Man so that sons of men could become the Son of God. It's, be- it's beautiful, this process that he does on our behalf. And so he shares this with them, that you have to be right with God in order to be right with people. But conversely, you have to also be right with people to be right with God. And so it's this relationship-building process. Now, one of the things that can surely destroy relationships that you all know is what he shares with us in chapter 3. It's the old tongue. That in our tongue, in our mouth, we have the very ability to ignite the fires of hell. How's that for uplifting? 
Thank you, James. And so you know this, though, about our own words. In Proverbs, it says that in the tongue is the power to both give life and to take it away. And if you've been around someone who has used words to encourage, you know how much life it can actually give to you, how it can set you out on your way. But at the same time, what one off-putting word, what one foul word can do is it can completely disrupt all kinds of progress. And so what he shares with them is that mature Christians have control of their tongue. And at the end of chapter 3, one of my favorite verses in the whole book, in the NIV, it says that uh, peacemakers who sow peace will reap a harvest of righteousness. And we are called to be peacemakers who sow peace into the lives of people all around us. Now, he moves from there with the power of the tongue to then last week what we looked at in chapter 4 is that mature Christians have integrity in their heart. That we can talk a good game, we can say we're going to go out and do things, but the reality is for the mature Christian, we will have integrity within our heart. Our very being will be one of integrity, but the reality is you don't have the ability to do that on your own. It takes a heart transplant. My heart is deceitfully wicked is what I have found. And so I need Jesus to recreate me, to build me from the inside out so that I can operate with integrity of heart, to have a heart transplant. Now, that brings us to chapter 5, where we're going to spend the next couple weeks going through these next two things as James is encouraging them in maturity. He's going to share with us this week that the mature Christian is patient in testing. Next week, we're going to look at the mature Christian being uh, prayerful. So why, if we're going to spend the whole service on just 12 verses, is patience so very important? Well, uh, James is going to communicate the importance of patience, especially in the last six verses, because he's going to use the words uh, patience, endurance, and perseverance six times in six verses. So it's clear that the Holy Spirit wants us to get this. He wants us to understand because the, the truth is, for the true believer, this is a vital sign. This is a nurse coming in to check to see if you have a pulse. The vital sign of a true believer is in our patience, in our endurance. And it can be the thing that separates the sheep from the goats. So today, James is going to address two different groups of people, the true believer and the one that is just putting it out there like they are a true believer, but they're not. And the thing that delineates these two groups of people is going to be patience, endurance, perseverance. Now, this is a problem as James is writing this letter uh, to the church uh, back in his day, around 50 A.D., and here we are in 2022, and what we find is it continues to be a problem, that we are not a people that are easily patient. We struggle in this arena. And when you go back before the time of James, almost a thousand years into the book of Isaiah, what you'll find is it was still a problem. It's been a problem since the fall for us to live out a life of patience. In fact, as Isaiah shares with us in Isaiah chapter 58, verse 1, He's speaking to a group that has a lot of religious practice, but what they're lacking is the heart behind the religion. He says in verse 1, Cry aloud, spare not. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Tell my people their transgressions and the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of God. They ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching God. This is their religious practice. They're really excited about showing up Sunday for church, or Saturday as it were. But 
In verse 3, they're crying out to the Lord, Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen? Why have we afflicted our souls and you take no notice? In fact, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure. This is the Lord now answering. And you exploit all your laborers. Indeed, you fast for strife and debate. You strike with the fist of wickedness. You will not fast as you do this day to make your voice heard on high. In verse 5, he says, Is this a fast that I have chosen, a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down like, a, like his, his head like a bulrush and to spread out sackcloth and ashes? Would you call this a fast and an acceptable day of the Lord? The Lord is questioning their motives. And then he goes on in verse 6 to say, Is this not the fast that I have chosen, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, that you break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and you to bring to your house the poor who are cast out? When you see the naked, that you cover him and do not hide yourself from your own flesh. Verse 8, then your light shall break forth like the morning. Your healing shall spring forth speedily and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. And at the beginning of verse 9, he says, you shall call and the Lord will answer. What is the fast the Lord is looking for? What these people were doing is all kind of religious practice. They were showing up. They were being good boys and girls. They were checking all the boxes. And yet what they lacked time and time again was mercy. They did not have compassion. And so the Lord didn't hear them at all. And so often, this is what happens. We want to go out and sacrifice and give to the Lord and give and, and write the check and check the box and say we're doing the right thing, and yet we do not care for one another, which is why Jesus said, go and learn this. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. It's not that the sacrifice was bad. It was the heart behind the sacrifice. And so the question comes up, then, why do we do church? What is the purpose of doing all this. Some of you are asking that right now. Like, this is the longest introduction I've ever heard. What are we doing here? Well, here's why we do church. Is it, so what my calling in particular is, is that for you all to be equipped. What Ephesians chapter 4 verse 12 says is that I am called to equip you as the saints for the work of the ministry. You're actually the evangelists. You're the ones to go take the word of God and carry it to the highways, to the byways, to the schools, to the workplaces. It's for you to go out and make more disciples. This is the calling, the reason behind why we gather. Yes, it's to be encouraged, but it is also so that we will go out and be mercy. We will be mercy with skin on. We will actually be compassion in action. That's my favorite definition of the word mercy. To go out there and to be compassion, Jesus with skin on. And so, as we make our way finally to James chapter 5, verse 1, James is going to address two different groups. A group that is religious, just like what we looked at from Isaiah 58. They had all the practice, but they had none of the compassion. They were not true believers. And then he's going to transition and address the true believer in verses 7 through 12. And so... In James chapter 5, verse 1, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. 
here eventually it'll catch up. And so what we find in uh, the beginnings of this is that James is addressing those that are putting it out there like they are true believers. And yet what has happened is they actually believe in their finances. They do not have true faith. Their faith is actually in their bank account. And so he's addressing this with them. And how we know when James transitions, you'll find out here in just a minute, in verse 7, he's going to call them brethren. Notice he's not referring to these guys as brethren. He just goes right into it. Because they have put up for themselves their money. They're counting on that to actually save them in the day of judgment, not their relationship with the Lord. Now, he's writing this to them because it's not obvious to the church that these uh, wolves in sheep clothing actually exist. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, John shares with them something similar. He says, they, speaking of not true believers, went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that, they might be, that it might be made manifest that none of them were of us. Got to love how John writes in a circle. Thank you, John, for making that clear. What he's saying is that when they were with us, it looked like they were with us. But when they left, it was obvious to us through their behavior, through the way they addressed other people, through the way they conducted their business, it was clear that they were not one of us. And so now they're no longer with us because they weren't one of us. It was made manifest to us in how they dealt with others. And it's so vitally important for us to, when we leave here, that we don't just leave and forget every single thing we knew about Jesus, but to actually take him with us. Because how we interact and how we act, we actually are what I would call it like a Holy Spirit hotspot. And if you think about this, even in the Old Testament, what God did is he had his spirit actually tabernacle in and amongst the people. He put the tabernacle in the middle of the children of Israel like a hot spot for the Holy Spirit. And it would then go forth from there, the Spirit of God would. Know this about yourself. You are a tabernacle for the Holy Spirit. He wants to, desires to dwell within you, which means everywhere you go, you're taking him to be able to act and interact with others. And so we are like these little hot spots going in all different places of Charleston and Coles County and Clark County, everywhere that we get an opportunity to interact, even Cumberland County. Yes, I'll include them too. Everywhere that we go to get to interact, we are like hot spots for the Holy Spirit. But then what kind of spirit are we communicating to those around us? This is what John is saying. This is what James is driving at with these people who have put their trust in money. Now, you might have heard this, uh, if you grew up in church any time at all, is that money is the root of all evil. Maybe you've heard that before. Now, the problem I have with that saying is that it came from the Bible, and yet it is not exactly what the Bible says. In fact, I believe it's from one of our favorite 80s hair bands uh, called Twisted Scripture, right? Some of you have heard of a little, it's taking Scripture and then twisting it just a little bit. What the verse actually says, if you go to first. Uh, Timothy chapter 6 verse 10, this is what Paul communicates. He says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith and their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Notice with me what the verse says. The love of money is a root, not the root, of all kinds of evil. You see, money is an inanimate object. It doesn't have feelings or emotions. It is just simply a tool. 
We can either use it for good or we can use it for evil. Money in and of itself is not evil. It doesn't have feelings. What the issue is, is the love of money, which communicates to our heart. The money is really an indication of what is going on inside our hearts. What are you giving your money, your time, your efforts, your attention to? Because in that spot, what Jesus says in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6 is where your treasures are, there is your heart. That's what he's communicating. And so for these men, as they are counting on, banking on their finances, it's showing where their true faith lies. It's showing what their heart position is. And I want to be careful to point that out because it's not a sin to save money. It's not a sin to actually plan and consider things because the Lord has given you these things as a tool. And so if it was a sin for man to save money, then why on earth would we have this whole story of Joseph, which you guys remember from Genesis, is all about him saving for the future. God gives him this vision of need that they're going to have in Genesis, and what Joseph does very wisely, so much so that he's elevated up to number two in all of Egypt because of his savings plan. He was the original Dave Ramsey. Way to go, Dave. Here's Joseph. He's saving for the future. He's putting things away. But note with me that Joseph's faith wasn't in the savings account. His faith was in Jehovah. His faith was in God. Which is why when you get to Genesis chapter 50 verse 20, after his father had died and now his brothers are worried that he's going to enact revenge upon them, Joseph tells them there in verse 20 of Genesis 50 that what you intended for evil, God intended for good. So many people could be saved alive. The purpose of the savings plan, the reason for the importance here for Joseph to save was so that people could be saved. It wasn't about the money. It wasn't about the savings account. It was about people. Now what James, back to the text at hand, says, you guys wondered how I was going to drag 12 verses out. Now you know. As James, as James is sharing here, he says that you've put your faith in this and it's going to eat you up. You've heaped up treasure for yourself for the last days. But what they've actually done is they had heaped up judgment. Now, a little bit of uh, Bible info for you Bible students is that anytime you see the phrase last days, it's referring to a specific time period in Scripture known as the time of Jacob's trouble. It was prophesied about in Daniel. It was then reiterated by John as he shares about the tribulation period through the revelation he got on the island of Patmos. That is the last days. But the Bible will also say the last days day, which is one specific day in the middle of the last days, known as the day of judgment, the second coming of Christ. And so what he's saying here is you have saved up your money for the last days because you think it's going to save you. But instead, all you have done is heaped up judgment on yourself. What Paul would communicate in Romans chapter 2, similarly in verse 5, he says, but in accordance with the hardness of your impenitent, impenitent, I can't say that word. It means unrepentant, if that helps you. Heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteousness and, and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds. What you've done is you have heaped up treasures for the day of wrath. You've actually heaped up wrath upon yourself. Now, Back to James, verse 4. 
He says, indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out, and the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord Seboeth. And so what is happening is these false believers in the church were taking advantage of the less fortunate within their congregation and the less fortunate within their community. What he's saying is, as you've taken advantage of people, those cries have gone up to the Lord Seboeth. I don't know if any of you have ever had a loved one taken advantage of, but it is one of those things that, that truly you can't describe the kind of anger that that uh, brings about. Years ago when my grandmother was alive, uh, she had one of these telemarketing people try to take advantage of her, to, to send money to her. And I remember talking to her about this person, these people that were trying to take advantage, and never have I been so close to having myself a Nehemiah ministry. I mean, I was ready to go find these dudes and start plucking the hair out of their beards, right? Like, the, I, I'm upset and angry because they were taking advantage of someone that I loved. Now, if that has been you, here's a bit of encouragement. Um, for those who have been taken advantage of, the Lord of Seboeth is there. He's got your back. You don't need Brock Ashley with the Nehemiah ministry. The Lord Seboeth, and what that means in the Old Testament is Lord Seboeth is Lord of hosts or Lord of angel armies. I shared with you last week in chapter 4 that uh, friends with the world is enmity with God. That means to make war with God. And if you go to war with God, uh, do you know who wins? It's not you. Not even close. Similarly with the Lord Seboeth, as the cries come up to him as the Lord of hosts. If you go back to the Old Testament, one of my favorite stories is a Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, had surrounded the city of Jerusalem with 185,000 Assyrian troops. And he began to blaspheme the name of the Lord to Hezekiah the king. And Hezekiah, he's out of, he's out of options. They have no food. They have no money. They have no resources. The troops are all worn out. And now this man is blaspheming his God. And he takes the words of Sennacherib and he lays them out there in the temple and he says, Lord... Here's what Sennacherib says, says about you. What are you going to do about it? And what the Lord does is on one night, he sends an angel, singular, and 185,000 Assyrian troops are found dead the next morning. That's one angel. What the Lord says is, I have an army of angels. Imagine what he can do with an army of angels. And so as we are upset with people being taken advantage of. And as we want to come along beside them, understand that our God is the Lord of angel armies. He is very, very capable of defending himself and those that he loves, those that are less fortunate, and he will do so. Now, verse 5 reads, And you have lived on the earth in pleasure and in luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. These people have lived like nothing's ever going to change. They just continue to take advantage. And what he says is, your hearts are being fattened as in the day of slaughter. What Jesus communicates as he's sharing about the last days there in Matthew chapter 24 is that the last days will be like in the days of Noah in verse 37. He says, but as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. 
so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. As things continue to get worse, as people continue to want to just put their head down and take advantage of those all around them, what Jesus is communicating and what James is trying to reiterate is, as this happens, they have no idea what is really on the cusp. They are staring down the barrel of judgment. They are fattening their hearts for the day of slaughter. And in verse 6, you have condemned, you have murdered the just, and he does not resist you. And now, the question is, is James talking about literal murder? Are these people actually going out murdering folks in their town? It's possible that they are, or it's possible that they were just murdering people by the way they conducted their business. Now, this next little bit is probably going to offend some of you. It's going to rankle a few, but I have to ask it anyway. How are you to do business with? How do people, when they come into contact with you, how do they take your business dealings? Have you ever considered that? Have you ever considered how they walk away from a business dealing with you? Before I came to know Christ, when I would deal in business, uh, it was my goal to get every single dollar that I could to make sure they didn't make nothing off of me. (laughs) That's the way. And I thought that that was actually doing a good job. But what it never occurred to me is, I wonder how they walk away from that interaction. I wonder if they walk away because they didn't make any money, no commission dollars, and they weren't able to feed their family. Was I actually taking part of murdering them because I was dealing with them shrewdly? And so, as I bring that up, and already some are twisting and turning just a little bit, what I have come to realize, and I hope you do too, is that everything that I have has been given to me by the Lord Jesus. Every dollar, every possession, it's all because His grace. He just loves me. It's not because I did a good job, I was a good boy. He just cares so much for me. So with that being said, it's all His. And so I would challenge you that if it's all His, the next time you're in a business dealing and you cannot afford the price that they're asking, maybe, just maybe the Lord is telling you, you don't need it. You don't need it all that bad if you cannot afford it. Or on the flip side, what if I go ahead and write the check and it's a bad deal? Well, here's the reality. If it's the Lord's money and you paid what they were asking because at the time you thought it was a fair price and it turns out they gave a better price to someone else, whose money was it anyway? It was the Lord's. Now who do they have to deal with? Go back to verse 4. They're dealing with the Lord of angel armies. Good luck to them, because as far as I can tell, they just took advantage of the God of the hosts of heaven. And so when we begin to deal with people like that, it's a complete freedom. And then folks will actually enjoy to do business with you. It will become a pleasure to do business. Now that I'm almost done offending you, verse 7. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and the latter rain. Now, he starts by saying, therefore, which you guys know when we see that, we ask ourselves, what is it therefore? It refers to the previous section of Scripture where he's just sharing with how these unbelieving people, these false believers are dealing 
with folks shrewdly. So he's saying, with all that in mind, what we're to do is to be patient, to wait upon the coming of the Lord. And he gives us a farmer as an example. Now, with where we're at in the heartland, it's not hard to look around and see the farmer as the example of patience. And if you think about this spiritually, it is a beautiful picture because what the farmer does is he works his field, he or she, they work their field, they fertilize, they sow seed, and then they have no more control. <laughs> it is time to just sit back and wait, waiting on the rain to come. Things that they have absolutely no control over. And so, too, is when we sow spiritual seed. It requires diligence, endurance, because we sow and we sow and we sow, and oftentimes we see absolutely nothing. Sometimes years go by. And what, what happens if you're wired anything like me is, I just want to quit. <laughs> I just want to stop. I want to stop sowing seed. I want to stop believing that God's going to somehow work in this relationship. And so what the Lord knows, and we covered this in, when we studied Galatians chapter 6, verse 9. This is why Paul shares this, as he also gives an example of a farmer. He says, let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Don't grow weary while doing good. Why does he share that? Because he knows we grow weary. We get tired. We get worn out. But in due season, you shall reap as we sow. And so Paul's encouragement, James' encouragement is keep going, keep sowing. Now verse 8, <clears throat> you also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. We are, when it comes to the Lord, to operate in a place of expectation. I've shared with you before, when it comes to expectations in others, what I have found is that over and over again, when you expect something of others in a relationship, you will most of the time be disappointed. And so when it comes to investing in others, it is best for us to operate not from a place of expectation. To put in 100% of the effort, expect nothing back, and then you will not be disappointed. But you can expect in one relationship that he will never let you down and that is in the Lord Jesus, is that we are to be expectant of him, that he will not disappoint, that he will bring about a harvest, that he will come again. And so we can take great comfort in that expectation. But in the meantime, and this is the really encouraging part of the message, is that as we are waiting expectantly on him, and we look at the world at large, that morally and spiritually and politically, things seem to be falling apart, going to hell in a handbasket, um, here's the encouragement. It's going to get much, much, much worse. <laughs> it's, it's actually going to get worse. And we know that it's going to get worse because Jesus said, it's going to get worse. Matthew 24, he fills the entire chapter full of this thing is going to be like a woman in travail, in birth. She is going to, as she is in labor, she is going to have labor pains. And what you ladies know that I was just there to witness a few different times is that the contractions get closer and closer the closer that you get to the actual birth. And so too it will be with the coming of the Son of Man. 
that pestilences and famines and kingdoms rising against kingdoms and earthquakes and all these natural events are going to get closer and closer together. So where's the encouragement in that? Thank you very much, Pastor. We are not, with all that in mind, as a people who have the book, by the way, where Jesus said that was going to happen, to run around like chicken little, crying out, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. We are not called to go and post every crazy thing we can post on the book of face about how the entire world is getting ready to come to an end. What we are called to do is to be confident, to be confident that he will do exactly what he said he was going to do. He is telling us this ahead of time to actually give us confidence. And so I would encourage you to go back to another time of judgment, Genesis chapter 18. Instead of being like Chicken Little and every crazy thing out there, is it instead what Jesus does is he comes there in the Old Testament. He is a, a, a Christophany there. He appears before Abraham. And as he appears before Abraham, he is coming to look and see what is happening at Sodom and Gomorrah. All the vile things that are taking place in this area. And as he's there, he communicates with the other two angels that are there with him. And he says, should we let Abraham know what's going to take place? He is our friend after all. And so they come to the conclusion we should absolutely tell him of the impending judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. Who just years before his nephew Lot went to live. Now on that day it was a beautiful fertile valley right there off of the coast of what is now the Dead Sea. So if you get the opportunity to go there, what you'll find is um, it is very, very, very dead. Like there's nothing anywhere for miles and miles, salt and sand and desert. But at this time, it was a beautiful fertile valley, and he knew that his nephew was there. And so as judgment is being shared with him by God, he says, look, this is the thing I'm going to do. What Abraham proceeds to do in verse 25, he says, far be it from you, to do this thing, to slay righteous with the wicked, and so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall you not judge all the earth to do right? And so the Lord said, If I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare it for their sake. Now, Abraham continues, and he says, well, What about 45, Lord? What about 40? What if you find 30 righteous? What if you find 20 righteous people in Sodom? He finally gets down to 10, feeling pretty good about 10. And the Lord says, and I will not destroy it for the sake of the 10. Now, Abraham leaves feeling pretty good about his negotiation with the Lord. The importance of this is that what Abraham did is what we are called to do. He did not complain about the politics of Sodom. He didn't, interestingly enough, even complain about the sinful state of the people. What he did was just simply cry out for the righteous. He cried out for whoever might believe as they were staring down the barrel of judgment. He prayed for them. He interceded on their behalf. He knew that the Lord could work through all the other stuff. And by the way, as we come into contact with people all around us, they live all around here. They are staring down the barrel of judgment. I want to encourage you, rather than worrying about their lifestyle or their politics, pray that they might be saved. Pray that they might come to know Jesus and avoid the judgment that is to come. Pray for them instead of praying on them. 
And that's very much what Abraham does in this spot because he knows. He is he has expectation. He has a friendship with God. We have the same thing with Jesus. We know he's going to come back for us. He's not going to leave us or forsake us. But to take the opportunity to pray for the people around us. Because as James continues in verse 9, he says, Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Don't grumble and gripe and growl about the circumstances of what's going on. But remember, the judge is at the door. So how are we to be as a people? What Jesus says in Luke chapter 21 is that we are to be a people. In verse 27. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to happen, here's the part to underline. Look up and lift up your heads. Because your redemption draws near. We are to be a people that looks to heaven. Knowing with certainty that our redemption draws near. He's not going to leave us in this spot. He's not going to forsake us with all the evil that's going on around us. He is going to come just as he said he would for us, his bride. Praise the Lord. Now continuing in verse 10. My brethren... Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed to endure. You have heard the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord. And the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. But verse 12, above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no lest you fall into judgment. And so as we wrap up today, James' encouragement is we are to be a people of our word, who our yes is our yes, not just when we like, our, like the answer or the outcome. And our no is our no, a people that can be trusted and that can deal with others with integrity. And so he shares this with us, that we are not to be one to grumble and complain but to simply let our yes be yes and our no, no, a people to persevere and have patience. And he gives us two examples to conclude with of patience. First of all, the prophets who suffered for God. Think about the prophets in the Old Testament, given a word from the Lord, and yet they suffer from that word. They're suffering for the word the Lord gave them. I mean, for 40 years, Jeremiah ministered to a nation that did not listen, and his reward was to be stoned to death by his own people. For years, through 66 chapters that we have in Isaiah, he prophesied to the people to repent, to please repent, and their reward to him is King Manasseh saws him in half, a, a brutal way to give his life. And yet... Be encouraged. They never one time turned back. They endured. And he goes on to share with us the story of Job. Remember the perseverance of Job, who for chapter after chapter he suffers from God or being allowed by God to suffer, losing his family, losing his money, sitting on an ash heap with a bunch of friends that have all kinds of great advice that makes him feel worse. We all need friends like that. Thank you, Lord, for these friends with awful advice. And yet after chapter after chapter, he continues to persevere. And what we see out of that is a story of patience and perseverance and endurance. 
what we find is many people will say, you probably heard this maybe even growing up in church too, uh, be careful that you don't pray for patience. You ever heard that? Or else the Lord might give it to you. What an absolutely awful thing to say. I, I would share with you that Galatians 5 says that patience is actually a fruit of the Spirit. It's a gift from God. Why would you not want? It's like you parents giving a gift to your kids and them saying, yeah, not interested. Like that, that's the same thing. Patience is actually a gift. And oh, how Job was blessed as he endured at the end of his life. And the Lord, at the end of that story, blessed his socks off, double everything he had because of his endurance. That is who we are called to be. People who are patient in endurance, patient through suffering. And what the writer to the Hebrews says, one last place to turn. I promise we're headed down the home stretch. Hold on, Gwen. We're about there. Verse, 20, verse 32 of Hebrews chapter 10. But recall the former days in which after you were illuminated or enlightened, coming to know Christ, you endured a great struggle with suffering, partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me and my chains and joyfully accepted and the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that you have done the will of God, that you may receive the promise, in verse 37, yet for a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Verse 39, but we are not those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. You see, patience is one of the surest signs of faith. How is faith working out in your life? How are we dealing in patience through trial, through tribulation? We think of signs of faith as the miraculous, being able to pray eloquent prayers, or being able to do all these things, speak beautifully. And yet, here's what the Lord says, is one of the surest ways of faith is through patience. Just keep showing up. And yet, time and time again, what my flesh does is despises it. My flesh hates patience. It cannot stand patience, and it causes me to want to draw back, to want to quit. And what the writer to the Hebrews and what James is also trying to encourage us in is to keep going. In chapter 11 of Hebrews, we have what is known as the Hall of Faith. And throughout this chapter, it is a list of names who endured. Many of them stumbled, slipped, fell along the way, and yet what they all have in common is they endured. Which leads us to chapter 12 of Hebrews, the last place we'll go, I promise. Therefore, and since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses described in chapter 11, let us lay aside every weight to the sin which so easily ensnares us. <clears throat> and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith.
who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He endured so that we could endure, so that we could actually experience true peace, true joy. And what I take from that is that he is the author and the finisher of my faith. When I'm in the middle of my story, he is still writing it. He is going to continue this story, though, until the day he returns and makes me new. Endure. That's the name of the game. So as I was thinking about this, as we come to an end, four years ago, the Lord had me in a spot where I'd finally turned my life around as an assistant pastor of this beautiful little church in southern Missouri. And for the first time, I was able to see what I thought was my dream come true, and that is to own my own little business. I had my name on stuff, and we were finally in a place of success. And what God did in the middle of that is he turned the whole thing upside down. And, and it was a tremendous trial that resulted in me no longer having the very thing that I thought I wanted for all those years. If he would just give me this, this would be perfect, Lord. And finally, I'm in this spot. I'm doing what he says. Lord, I'm following after you. I'm going hard for Jesus. Finally, after 37, 38 years, I'm finally following hard after you. And he took it away. But if not for that, we don't get to sit right here, right now. I'd still be in southern Missouri, you see. And I would not get the opportunity to experience one of the greatest joys of my entire life, and that is getting to be the pastor of this church. You see, oftentimes, we only see what's written on the page that we're on. And what the Lord is communicating is he is the author and a finisher of our faith. Whatever trial you're in the middle of, whatever thing you're experiencing right now, all you can see is the writing on that page. You have no idea what he is going to finish the book with, but he does. Where do you put your faith? Where do you put your confidence? Because what he told me is from Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, is that he who has begun a good work in you will finish it. He will finish this work. And he's going to do the same thing in your life. My story's still not done, neither is yours. Trust in him to be not only the author, but the finisher of your very faith. And so, Lord, we thank you and we praise you for being not only the author, but also the finisher of our faith. So many times, even in the midst of what we think is a good thing, what we think is the right thing, you are continually teaching us all about better. I would have settled for good a long time ago. But Lord, you have great in mind. And I know, based upon this group, you have great in mind for each and every one of them. We are so quick to settle and to not endure and not to push through because we want to settle for good. Lord, help us where we lack faith. Lord, what the man cried out in, in Mark, as you said, for him who believes all things are possible. And the man who saw his son dying there, he said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Lord, we believe. 
Please help our unbelief. Please help us to be able to trust in the author and the finisher of our faith. Ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, would you please stand? In this time of desperation And all we know is doubt and fear There is only one foundation We believe We believe broken generation when all is dark you help us see there is only one salvation we believe we believe we believe in God the Father, we believe in Jesus Christ, we believe in the Holy Spirit, and He's given us new life, we believe in the crucifixion, we believe that He conquered death, we believe in the resurrection, and He's coming back again, we believe. Let our faith be more than anthems Greater than the songs we sing In our weakness and temptations We believe We believe We believe in God
God's people said. Amen. 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 Thank you guys so much. Um, if you've ever been in the midst of a trial, sometimes all you can say are words like that. I believe. I believe. And I would encourage you uh, to say that until your heart catches up. God bless you guys. If you need prayer at all, uh, happy to hang around and pray with you guys. Uh, praying that you guys have a wonderful